Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equality, inclusion and diversity in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Grace Lorden and Richard Nesbitt. Dr. Grace Lorden is an Associate Professor in Behavioural Science at the London School of Economics and is the founding director of the Inclusion Initiative. Launching in November this year, the Inclusion Initiative will aim to bring together behavioural science insights designed for firms to really reap the benefits of inclusion of all talent and will produce academic research to support this end. Designed to be highly measurable, quantifying the link between inclusion and business outcomes, the initiative will provide practical suggestions and interventions to drive change. In addition to her teaching role on behavioural science at a master's and executive master level, Grace has led many projects advising both the UK and European government on major policy change initiatives, including minimal wage laws and advising on the future of skills. Grace, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Richard Nesbitt is the adjunct professor of the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto. He has also recently been a visiting professor here at the London School of Economics in the UK. And Richard is the retired COO of the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, CIBC, and retired CEO of the Toronto Stock Exchange. In 2017, Richard published a book entitled Results at the Top with Barbara Annis, who was also a guest on the show in January 2018. The book focused on the issue of men's responsibility for gender diversity to improve their organisations. And Richard, it's wonderful to see you. Welcome to the show. Very pleased to be here. And this episode is recorded in Grace's office here at the London School of Economics. So as always, we invite each of our guests to take a minute to just tell us a bit about what they're up to at the moment. So Grace, let me come to you first of all. What are you focused on at the moment? So at the moment, I'm um, focused on launching the Inclusion Initiative here at the LSC. So this is a new research unit that will bring behavioural science insights to financial professional services firms in the City of London to help them enhance the inclusion of all talent. Um, so the idea is this, that this is all encompassing. Um, and I want to move firms away from thinking about diversity along one or two particular spectrums to thinking about the teams that they have and making sure that all voices are heard with respect to assessing behavioural risk, which is um, quite important for financial professional services, thinking about products for their customers and innovating, but also to get them thinking about including talent at the bottom of the pipeline and encouraging people who up to this point have not necessarily thought about careers in financial professional services to come forward and think about joining the City of London. Amazing. And we'll get into so much of that uh, on the show today for sure. And and Richard, uh, it's great to see you here in London. Uh, I think the last time we met, we were on stage in Toronto together. So and congratulations on the book, by the way. I talk about it all the time. Uh, tell us what your focus is. What brings you to London? Well, I've, I've actually moved to London okay, uh, welcome. <laughs> and I'm working with Grace to help get the uh, inclusion initiative off the ground. My She's going to be responsible for the content. She's the brains behind it. But I hope to help her uh, uh, bring it out to industry. So the, what's very uh, important about this initiative is we want to take the findings from the research and apply them to industry. And we're going to be focusing initially, at least on the financial services industry in London, but of course, also in North America. And, and really keen to hear your thoughts on how organisations should be embracing change and also some, where some of the difficult parts sort of elements are as well. So, um, Grace, let me come to you first of all in terms of talk to us about you know, your findings. I mean, you've been doing some research. Tell, tell us what you found. 
So um, I, my research started with thinking about why people choose the jobs that they do. And also once they actually get into those jobs, what determines who is successful um, beyond their own skills, abilities and talent. And one of the big factors that comes true from my research is that inclusion really matters. And that's inclusion in conversations um, when you're at kind of a key ages like 16, when you're determining whether or not to stay in A-levels in the UK or go to university in some other countries. Um, also, what you, what, um, what you decide to do when you go to university. But equally, when you actually get to jobs, whether or not you're actually included in opportunities, such as getting stretch assignments, stretch projects, stretch goals. So based on that... Um, and my belief that inclusion really matters for the City of London. I've spent some time doing a qualitative study, which really involved going and meeting 40 of the most senior leaders in London City. So I interviewed um, six CEOs, seven other people on the on executives. There was 20 people who are very senior income generators in their firms, four from the first line of defence and three from human resources. And we um, asked them what they thought the obstacles were to inclusion in the firm with my gut feeling that actually if we improve inclusion, that we'll improve it outcomes for some people who are getting a raw deal in the city at the moment. And rather than just take what the 40 leaders said as given, I also went and organized three events and they were attended by 114 people from across the entire pipeline. And then further, I went and met 30 people who were very junior in the pipeline, paying attention to making sure that I included voices from um, lower socioeconomic status, um, different ethnicities and also um, a, a gender balance. Mm -hmm. And from all of those conversations, I came up with the 10 obstacles that were cited the most for inclusion in the city. And now based on what I've learned in the past from behavioural science, I came up with actions. Um, so that's now out there in a report for any firm to download and take forward in their firm themselves. But what I'm hoping to do going forward is learn more about how effective those actions are. So my gut feeling is that they will be effective, but I'm a scientist, so I want to see empirical evidence in, um, in, in that way. But I'm also interested in learning how they work in particular contexts. So some actions might work better in toxic environments. Some actions might work better when you already have a particular good culture in the firm. So if you kind of think about it in terms of bang for the buck, so some firms will be interested in linking inclusion to profits and loss, which which I'm which I'm really excited about. But equally, some firms might be interested in linking it to employee well-being. And I think that's kind of the future of where I want to go is learning if I pull a lever, which is the best lever to get firms to a more inclusive workplace. Mm -hmm. and, and you mentioned about having the list of the, the 10 that you might uncovered. Can you just give us a, a sense of uh, kind of which ones bubbled up to be the, the, the most challenging? So my I mean, the, the one that I'm most interested in is always groupthink. So um I've done a lot of work with firms where I've gone in and looked at the conversations that individuals are having amongst themselves, um, looked to see whether or not they're discussing in a way that will push the boundary of the firm. So come up with a more creative solution, look to see whether or not they're interested in each other. So it's probably no surprise to your listeners that you see a lot of groupthink in um, at times when you have toxic cultures. So that's kind of a no brainer. What's really interesting that has come up is that often you go in and you meet happy teams often teams that seem like they are embracing dissent, having a good argument, but feeling very, very psychologically safe. But those same teams do still seem to avoid topics of conversation where members don't necessarily feel familiar with the content. So they overfocus on the shared information that they have um, and they tend to push to the sides hidden information. Now, you can imagine when we think about diversity and the values of diversity, the whole point is that you have 
different uh, individuals with different life experience coming up with unique solutions. But then if we get together as a group and we overfocus on what the average have in common, it's probably not going to give you the best from those diverse people who are around the table. So the report kind of contains some very easy actions to get people speaking more at meetings. Um, And one of the simplest solutions actually to this is most of the meetings I'm in, the chair of the meeting or the leader of the meeting speaks the most in the beginning, usually lets me know their point of view before the meeting even begins, which is quite baffling given they're going to make the decision later on anyway. So, you know, just actually coming into the meeting and saying, I'm really interested to hear what you say. This is the topic. Tell me something I don't know. Whoever tells me something that I don't know, that's that's what I'm going to be interested in hearing and really turning on its head what we do when we come together as meetings. So really trying to um, move away from groupthink. And it's funny you say that because I was just thinking exactly those words while you were talking was it is literally turning this on its head. And, and I mean, Richard, you spent an enormous amount of time in boardrooms and in meetings and <laughs> and you were smiling while, while Grace was talking as well. I mean, is is first of all, is is that your experience? And do you think that that is a it's a turning on its head? Is that is that something that can be done very easily, or is is that a, such a cultural shift? Well, I think the environment's better for that now than it maybe it was, you know, a decade ago or two decades ago. People are aware that there are issues and problems, and and part of that's seen in just being able to recruit people now into the industry. Uh, it's not a it's not a, a slam dunk anymore that this that financial services is the top industry to be attracted to. And so uh, I think that what a uh, positive development, and we're hearing it from, uh, from corporations, is that they're really focused on the well-being uh, and the inclusion uh, of people and including people of different backgrounds as well mm-hmm. into their organization. That's something that's sort of developed more recently. And I think it's a very positive thing. Mm-hmm. And what do you think will be one of the, the driving changes? I know you're thinking a lot at the moment about the role of technology in organisations as well. And I'm, I'm sort of keen to explore that with you. Because the world of work has changed so much, not only, as you say, in terms of culture and, and behaviours and uh, the way in which meetings are run perhaps is beginning to shift, but also the role of technology. Can you share some thoughts on that? Well, technology is going to change everything. Uh, and I'll give you a little promotion on a new book I have coming out called The Technological Revolution in Financial Services will be out in the summer, published by University of Toronto Press. And really what we're seeing is just what we say is a revolution in financial services. Uh, The world of financial services is being changed inexorably by technology. That has tremendous impact on people. Okay, Some people are threatened by that. Some people are advantaged by that. One thing technology will will, will be used for is to reduce costs within the incumbent players. And so uh, technology is changing everything, including things like machine learning and artificial intelligence, which are being uh, used increasingly in decision making. And uh, I don't think we can really anticipate the impact that this is going to have on the customer experience, but we certainly can anticipate the impact it's going to have on employees, which is going to be a traumatic amount of change. And can you give us a couple of examples where you, you see that change coming from? Well, a good example in North America is we still like checks in North America. And in, in uh, uh, so today, checks, uh, we used to have to take the checks in paper form and then create a, a digital image of it. Mm-hmm. So what happened was the technology came along about six, seven years ago that the customer could take the picture of the check, digital picture of the check, and then that could be put into the system. And customers really like that, by the way, because then they don't have to go to a branch or to a... But who's saving the money on that is the bank. And it's a tremendous cost savings to have the cu- push to the customer 
to do all of the uh, 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 creation of the digital image. And you can think of parallels of that in other industries as well. You know, you do the self-checkout and mm-hmm. Amazon would like to have it no checkout, right? You just walk out and it's all... So these things, so there's, there's one example of significant change. The other thing is in terms of making decisions on loans, um, those are increasingly going to be made using uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence, uh, particularly in the retail sector. And then I would say the, the one area that's already gone through a profound change is the trading of foreign exchange. When you buy foreign exchange from uh, your local uh, financial services bank or credit union or uh, even a kiosk, that is executed by a machine entirely, 100%. There's no human interaction other than the person maybe that you're talking to. Uh, and, and that is entirely now automated and it has uh, uh, revolutionized the trading of foreign exchange. Uh, made it a lot better for people actually in terms of the efficiency of the market. Mm-hmm. And I think when it comes to organisations having to, um, to rethink the way in which they communicate and engage and drive change or, or to harness the potential of their employees at a time when they're embracing great technology is asking some very key questions of the senior management level. And what we hear a lot is that senior management are very committed to diversity inclusion. Right? They're very inc- committed to change. And what I was really fascinated by was the, the the kind of group of 20 you were talking about there, the kind of the next level down, Grace, uh, who are arguably the sticky middle. Uh, and so quite keen to hear both your opinions, actually, about how do you encourage uh, that level of management to really get the diversity point? Because you need the diversity, as you were saying, Richard, to to innovate and to bring in technology. But also uh, they are perhaps a reluctant group to change and harness the potential. Grace, let me ask you first of all. Come to come to first your thoughts on that. So, so I and and I think that the gains are more than that. So, as we move towards a world where we expect customers and financial professional services to interact more with technology in order to get services, it, there's going to be many more winners and losers um, if we don't embrace diversity and inclusion within these teams of middle management, because otherwise the products are going to be made by very specific people for very specific audiences. So for example, in behavioral science, we know that how we present information matters to people, but also how we present it matters depending on a person's gender, their age, their ethnicity, um, and other aspects of personality. So if we only have one type of person who's identifying those products, that's problematic. It's the same with the messenger effect. So how we actually deliver the message of changes in technology the person that we put in front of those audiences, the role model really matters. So again, if we just have one type of uh, people who are discussing what those products are actually going to be, that's problematic for the business. So it will hurt the customers, but it will also hurt the business. And a lot of times these decisions are made by mid-level managers. So it's very easy at the top for people to say, we believe in diversity and inclusion. And I would ask them, how much are they spending or what resources are they putting into making sure that their mid-level managers are inclusion leaders? And beyond that, are they checking that the services are working? Because buying services is a really quick way to signal that we care about diversity and inclusion. But most other projects that are rolled out in firms, we look to see what the value was, what the value added was, and we don't do that for diversity and inclusion. And I think that we need to do that and also move focus to the mid-level managers who ultimately are the people that the majority of the pipeline are interacting with on a daily basis. We hear words like permafrost, which I really, really don't like. I think most mid-level managers are absolutely trying to do their best. And I think if they realize 
that the gains that they can actually get from including diverse perspectives around their table that can go both to their bottom line mm-hmm. and their customer, you will get more buy-in. And I really believe the subject that I study, behavioral science, is perfect for this because you can teach leadership through behavioral science tools that allows a leader, a mid-level manager, however disenfranchised they may be, to learn quite quickly whether or not that change is actually working for them. And I think sometimes if you're working in a time-pressured environment and you are excluding voices around the table, you know, sitting through unconscious bias training or sitting through some training that tells you that you need to be more inclusive isn't very helpful. But I think learning tools that you can do live in meetings um, in order to actually bring better perspectives to that meeting is something that you will do. It's quick, it's easy, it's not tasking on your time. And actually learning how if I change my style a little bit and seeing if it works and knowing how to audit that is actually fun as well. So oh, and when you say tools, can you just give an example of what you mean by by, by a tool? I mean, is it is it a piece of technology that you're using as you run the meeting or is it a, a, a tip and a trick as a management technique? So it's definitely more tips and tricks. So while I believe technology can do a lot, I think the you know, for our businesses, we still really need to invest in, in our people. So a very simple example is very often when I sit in meetings, the person who speaks the most are the extroverts. They dominate the conversation. I find it hard to get a word in. I'm I'm actually naturally quite introverted. Um, even when I even even when I teach, I find it extraordinarily draining. So if I'm in a meeting and then people are called on randomly, that disrupts who's putting up their hand and who's shouting the loudest, and it also disrupts the the, the flow of the conversation. Equally, if I'm in a meeting and the first 15 minutes is spent with me writing down my ideas that I bring to the meeting and my leader takes that up on days that I don't necessarily feel like talking loudly or indeed battling when someone is interrupting me in that meeting, I do feel much more included in that space. And I think for a leader, if they do that, they learn quite quickly whether some of the quiet voices at the table actually really have nothing to say or they're finding it hard to get their voice heard in that meeting. So very easy tips and tricks, very cheap. No subscriptions, very easy to bring in on a day-to-day very, basis. Very intensely, incredibly practical as well. And just thinking about your, your book, Richard, the results at the top. I mean, this is all about breakthrough performance and it was about helping managers at the top of their game, the top of the tree and the middle managers understand the commercial potential that is there. And from what Grace was saying, aligning it clearly to a commercial imperative, which is what we always talk about on, on the podcast as well, is incredibly important. Were there other areas where... From your research, you found those middle managers really got the point because they had their eyes open to something specific. Uh, well, I would say today most people want to do the right thing. Uh, most people actually believe in this, quite honestly, I think. They actually don't know how to do it, though. That's that's what I find. And so what I think we're lacking in, in the business is uh, giving people the, the uh, training and the uh, ability to know what to do, okay? Uh, and I found that in my career, like it was trial and error, okay? I don't, like I, I'm trying to deal with this problem, but I'm not, nobody ever told me how to deal with this problem. Like in business, we learned about the capital asset pricing model and, you know, uh, motivational tools and things like that. But these are uh, complex human uh, interaction problems that uh, really has not had a lot of, time put into the research on how to deal with these problems. That's what uh, the inclusion issue is going to hopefully provide us. And I think that we need to we need to think a lot more about training people on how to manage. Okay. And middle managers are the people that you would start with, quite honestly, because they essentially run 
your, they, they are operating the day-to-day operations of your organization. So I think people want to do the right thing. They realize that this is these are important uh, initiatives, but I don't know that they have the training to really affect that change. So that's, I hope, uh, where institutions, companies will go is in terms of the training. Mm-hmm. And, and Grace, you, do, you talk in your research about disrupting the style of leadership training as well. Talk to us a bit about that. What, how, how can that training uh, be disrupted? Yeah, so again, it's, it's taking a behavioral science approach. So behavioral scientists believe, um, different to economists, who believe that when we make decisions, we weigh up the cost, benefits and risk, that there's actually two styles of thinking. So one is very fast, impulsive, you're on autopilot. The second is slow and deliberative. So our system one, which is our fast system, we're using about 80% of the time. Our system two, which is what you would actually use if you were choosing a mortgage, for example, or doing a really hard math equation, we're using about 20% of the time. So most of our middle level managers, when they're going about their daily business, are actually in system one. Everything is really, really fast. And we tend to make many more errors with our system one. Uh, And the type of training that I'm interested in putting out there are ones that do uh, are ones that equip the mid-level manager with the tools that I've just spoken about for groupthink and and, 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 kind of, and kind of leadership styles, if you like, very, very quick and easy that they can bring into their daily um, lives and get big bang for the buck. And also very, very small tweaks that they can make to their environment in order to make their workplace more inclusive. And I think why I'm really motivated by this, rather than looking at the, the very, very executive level and looking at the, uh, at the lower level, is that if you think about culture change as tipping or a domino effect, I think if you bring along kind of what I call the low-hanging fruits of the mid-level managers who will be excited about learning about behavioral science and they see gains and as their colleagues get to see that, slowly you can have culture change in the organization. I think organizations that have their ha- had their leaders saying for a long time that we believe in diversity and inclusion without changing the middle uh, um, level of the organization, they can say that forever and nothing nothing is going to change. But tipping, um, the tipping phenomenon of mid-level management is something that can really move a culture from quite bad to pretty good. And and certainly from from the people we talk to is, you know, those who really understand it are gaining a daily competitive edge. Yes. You know, so they are the ones actually within their organisations who are truly flying. And that, and that is the momentum that I think is going to drive change. So I think that's a perfect moment just to pause the conversation as we turn to Cynthia, who's got some research to support the discussion. When it comes to workplace culture, there is a large gap between what leaders think is going on and what employees say is happening on the ground. In the 2020 Accenture report, Getting to Equal, the Hidden Value of Culture Makers, two thirds of leaders feel that they create empowering environments in which employees can be themselves, raise concerns and innovate without fear of failure. But just one third of employees agree. In addition, employees care increasingly about workplace culture and believe it's important to help them thrive in the workplace, reported by 77% of women and 67% of men. A larger percentage of those in younger generations are more concerned with workplace culture than their older counterparts, 75% of Generation Z versus 64% of baby boomers. Thanks, Cynthia. And links to the research can be found on our website, www.diversitypodcast.com, where you can find episodes and sign up for early notifications of future recordings. Please do follow us on Twitter at DiversityPod and Diversity Podcast is available on Bright Talk and all good podcast channels. 
we'd love a rating because it all helps to promote the show. So before the break, we were talking about, Grace, you mentioned unconscious bias training, which of course a lot of people go, we've done our training, it's, it should be making us better, but actually is it? Uh, but also I've been thinking a lot about technology and at the heart of the technology lies a similar question about bias as well. I mean, Richard, as you sort of reflect on your previous book and now your book that's about to come out, but also for your management experience and the technology dimension as well, what are you thinking about in terms of bias? Well, I would say two things on that. Number one, on the data side, I, I would say there's just a lack of data uh, uh, around the topic of inclusion and diversity. And I think that to some degree is deliberate and there's been a somewhat of a resistance to publish this kind of data because the story is, well, the story I would argue is improving. The story is still not that good, okay, uh, in, in many industries. And so I would really like to see the same kind of uh, rigor in terms of reporting on diversity and inclusion as we have on executive compensation, for example. You know, we have pages and pages and pages of, on executive compensation in, in annual filings, but we have very little on, you know, how they deal, how they deal with their people. So I, I think that could be a big improvement. And hopefully, as we get into measurement issues, we can encourage people to start publishing more of this data. Because clearly, if you don't know what's happening within your organization, really, it's pretty hard to affect change. And when it comes to holding people to account, obviously, that we, we talked earlier about the competitive edge, you can measure that. Holding people to account, should that be baked into scorecards and remuneration, as you say? And But how else can that be? In a corporate be? setting, absolutely. You only change what you're being measured on. There's so many things you have to do in business that you, you, you focus on what you're being measured on. Profit, for example, uh, efficiency, for example. But And so if we want to affect change and we want to accelerate the pace of change, you really have to provide proper measures for this and have people have that baked into their evaluations and ultimately their compensation. That's the way to, to make it. And, and are you seeing a, a shift in mindset of people recognizing that that's appropriate? So people going, no, fair enough, I should be measured on that. Or are you still feeling a bit of resistance in the industry? Yeah, I think there's still a bit of resistance. I think, as I said, the, the story's not that good in, in many respects. And while it's improving, it's improving slowly. And therefore, I think that people would rather hold off reporting until they get to a better state, quite honestly. So but how long are we going to hold off, right? Like, you know, we could be holding off for a long, long time until everybody gets to a better state. So I think that this is very important. That, and, and I also think that business should, be, should embrace this and not rely on the government to impose it. So I would encourage business to get on with the job as well as get on with reporting the good work they're doing. It's fascinating you say that because you led me entirely to my next question, which was around the role of policy in some regards and there is some discussion about policy engagement around the question of culture. And Grace, you were saying earlier about toxic cultures and uh, navigating toxic cultures and thinking about how organisations can can uh, improve that. Um, you touched on it very lightly, but I'm really keen to come back to that as well in terms of from an employee's perspective, because we've talked a lot about from a management perspective, but some of your research was talking to young, younger talent, emerging talent, if you want to call it that. Um, is around some of the skills of, of how do you navigate toxic cultures without walking out the door and going, I never want to work here again, I'm out. Are you looking at that area as well? Yes, I mean, I, I guess, so one of the interesting things is that if I'm an individual who goes into a toxic culture and I'm experiencing that over months, the best thing probably for myself is to leave 
but the best thing for the group is that I actually stay and make a difference. Um, and I think in having companies invest in the core skills of their employees can really help during that transition period. So I'm talking about um, giving education on how to build resilience, how to build grit, how to build adaptability, how to be more creative, how to be more innovative. And I think that these skills will help people not just navigate toxic cultures, but will also help people when they're within a firm that actually has a good culture that's just going through a bad economic shock. They might be cost cutting, there might be redundancies. And also, I think in today's world where people do change jobs much more often, labour markets are tight, it can feel sometimes like the world is against you. So having those skills is really important. And I've been involved with a project that has placed those skills into secondary schools in the United Kingdom. And with the Inclusion Initiative, I really want to think about how we can place those, not just for our students here at the LSC, but for the very young pipeline going into the financial and professional services firm to get them over that first one and two year transition. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating, isn't it? Because I think at this time when, you know, I still have a sense that talk is cheap. You know, people are very keen to talk about the commitment to diversity inclusion. That's why we have the podcast, because we want to get into kind of what's difficult or what we have to focus. Uh, and that your research is goes right the way through the chain, as you say, right the way uh, back into schools as well. From the people you were talking to, I imagine that people who get the joke were keen to engage. What is it you want the industry to do uh, when they listen to this podcast and step up? So I really do want the industry to think about measurement and to think about data. So I'm going to try to come up with a credible macro measure of inclusion that will quantify inclusion across firms. And also within firms, I'm going to be looking at how best to measure inclusion within firms. And I also want firms to try to bring data into some of the big decisions that they're making. So for example, who we hire is really important. And in these days, it's, it's not uncommon in an interview setting to be asked if you care about diversity and inclusion. And you would want to have rocks in your head to say that you don't, regardless of where you come from or, or who you are. But one big test of that is to look backwards and look and see who were the people that that person brought along in their teams? Who have they worked with in the past? And is that statement credible? So I am an economist and we do have this term cheap talk for people who say things that aren't necessarily true. And in behavioral science, we do say, don't listen to what people say and just look at what they do. And I think data allows us to go closer to that. So really embracing data. Amazing. And the time on these podcasts just canters past to be here in your office on a Friday afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for hosting us. And what has been a really wide reaching conversation, actually, we've talked about technology, we've talked about data, we've talked about bias, we've talked about cultures, leadership, new talent coming through. Richard and Grace, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Street's Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya for her insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com. And that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. All our episodes are available in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. If you enjoy Diversity Podcast, remember to share on social media and give us a rating or review. It really helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.